0: thanks for joining us uh we multicast the show uh to clubhouse call in as well as twitter spaces live and we do it bi-directionally so audiences can interact with each other
1: hey hey and jason i'm so jealous because you know i'm good i'm i've read the book and i want to do a room talking about the book too so it's awesome that francine pulled this together in karma club
2: Well, listen. There's so much Um, to talk about that I don't think we have a shortage of rooms we can host. So, (laughs) you just tell me when and where, and I'll be there.
1: uh, Well, I'm here too. I Mm -hmm. want to hear Mm -hmm. more. Yes, Francine. I love the book. What? I
3: I I think the book is amazing, and I think if the book were written today, um, it would be even more um, more and more, you know, concerning than it was when it was written, oh my goodness, good morning, Barbara, good morning, Elkanah, Elkanah, your child has grown, speak, because I haven't seen you in so long, Barbara, I'm inviting you to speak, Um, and I'm going to tell you part of the reason I'm inviting everybody to speak, and I did a
0: room on Twitter Spaces y- yesterday. You're fluctuating, Francine, and the Twitter Spaces room actually closed. Uh, I'm not sure why, but I, I'm restarting it up with some my account. I one.
3: told
0: you. Yep. Like <laughs> Twitter
4: Spaces. Every single
3: time I start a Twitter Spaces room, it closes. It's like Twitter Spaces is like screw you, Francine. You know,
0: you are not
3: allowed to live stream on both platforms.
0: That's okay. And- I'll work around it. Well, let's
2: not we forget that in, there was a period where clubhouse rooms were crashing all the time as well. So I think it's one of these early kinks that these audio platforms have to work out. Remember there was a period where audio rooms on Clubhouse used to crash all the time, people would get kicked out of rooms, so happens. Oh yeah. But Fred seeing you're cutting in and out.
0: Uh, Francine, your um, your headphone might be coming yes. in and out again.
3: I'm not on a headphone.
2: Yeah. We're, we're having trouble hearing you, Francine.
3: It is my thirteen hundred dollar new iPhone.
2: I think that's a little better, so if you want to give it a shot we can we can get into it and hopefully it'll we'll will keep the quality.
3: First of all, let me say welcome to Karma Club. This is a weekly meeting of smart people who discuss major issues, um, and we invite other smart people to discuss them with us, and we have a whole host of major issues coming up, um, including seven, you'll be happy to know, voting rights, misinformation, and democracy. Um, so stay tuned, we are going to have a series of hair-raising rooms that I will attempt to moderate when I can get a set of headphones to fail, I mean to work. But here's, here's what I know, Mercury is in retrograde. Here's what I also know, karma will win. And I'm, I have an NFT for those of you who hold at least five karma coins and later on, when we get the audio stuff straightened out, I'll make it so um, but, um, we can get to the NFT. And those of you who hold coins, which is many of you, um, can download your NFT, which is an essay that I wrote called Money. Uh, and it's about how money is changing. turn it over to Jason Steinhauer. Jason is a professional historian. Uh, And what I was really uh, drawn to in his bio was that he is a public historian. And I think that has meanings that we haven't even started to unpack yet. And he has written a book that my grandson just received. Today, Jason, it came today while he was in school. And it's called, yeah, and it's it was his Christmas present, and, and it was called called uh, history. It's called history disrupted, and it's so- interesting concept because the has changed everything, and why shouldn't it change history as well? But in changing history, there are some issues. I see
2: you were black. Francine, you're cutting in and out. So if you're asking me a question, unfortunately, I didn't hear it. But if you want me to talk a little bit about the book, book, I can do so.
1: I can also talk about the book.
0: Yeah, and Francine, I can call you and connect you uh, by FaceTime audio as well, so don't worry. i will got you covered here.
1: I'm also happy to jump in um, and ask, yeah, the, yeah, maybe if you want, and ask questions since I have read the book as well.
2: Well, why don't I start with something that Francine mentioned while she gets the audio sorted, because she mentioned this term of, of public history and public historian, and um That term may seem, on the one hand, it may seem opaque, and on the other hand, it may seem sort of self-explanatory, but let me at least explain a little bit where the term comes from and what I mean by that, because that might help as a foray into the conversation. So Mm -hmm. people are aware that there are such things as professional historians, people who write and communicate history for a living. Those people... Uh, can work inside of academic institutions as professors, whether it be uh, at a university like Princeton or a community college or anything in between. Um, And typically, although not always, in that line of work, one has a PhD as a terminal degree. One has a certain level of Uh, subject matter specialty in a given topic, whether it be an aspect of American history or European history or whatever the case may be, African history. And typically, the requirements to hold that job are uh, teaching, research, and service. So you conduct research and write uh, books and articles, you teach courses, and you do service in the community or to your home institution. Um, But there's a whole nother side of the history universe, and those comprise historians who work in museums, who work in archives and libraries, who work in government agencies, whether it be uh, federal government. For example, the U.S. Department of State has a history office. Uh, The Library of Congress obviously has a lot of historians. I used to work at the Library of Congress. I worked there for seven years. Uh, There are historical societies across the United States, Canada, and elsewhere, Uh, There are historic homes and houses. There's places like Colonial Williamsburg, which people might be familiar with. And some of the history practitioners in those spaces have PhDs. Others do not have PhDs. They have master's degrees in history, or maybe they have uh, undergraduate degrees in history and a master's degree in something like museum studies or preservation. And that wing of the profession is, is termed public history. And there's a lot of overlap between public history and academic history, uh, or history that happens sort of inside the walls of university campuses. have sort of a different series of challenges than academic historians do. Um, you know, public historians are generally not teaching courses, although some... Uh, but, they but they are, are interacting, interacting with visitors, whether it be visitors to a museum or a historic site on a daily basis, and, and are creating other forms and modes of scholarly production. production. Maybe they, Maybe they don't write books or monographs. Like
0: Francine, the, uh, do you mind uh, turning off your speaker? You can hear everything through the phone, FaceTime. Oh, okay. Yeah, thanks. And also calling crowds, sorry about that. Uh, we're just trying to connect the <laughs> platforms here. And so is was Twitter space as well, sorry about that. Oh, I'm not sure. Fancy, I'll call you back on the iPad, one sec.
2: I began my career at UTMs. I then moved into archives and libraries. I actually helped to create the archive and library of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, which was kind of a cool experience. I uh, also worked at the Library of Congress, as I mentioned. I uh, was the founding director of a uh, small think tank type place, and then I've written this book, which is sort of a extension and a continuation of my thinking about public history and how history gets communicated uh, to various public That That's a great
3: beginning, Jason. I hope you all can hear me now. I've, I've given up I've given up on headphones altogether. Can you hear me? That's better. Way better. Okay. I give I up. I mean, that, Mercury is in retrograde. I don't know what it means, but it certainly is affecting me. Uh, uh, other people say it means your technology doesn't work. Um, so, Jason, you've written this book about how history gets changed through the Internet. And truthfully... You know there needs no ghost come from the grave to tell us that because we've been seeing the seeds of a misinformation campaign that started in 2016 and proceeds uh, totally through through the internet. And I, I want to know what your thesis is about the impact on history from misinformation campaigns like that one?
2: Well, I can talk about the thesis of the book. Misinformation, disinformation is part of the book, but it's not the entirety of the book. I I went into the book with a question, and the question is, every day online, we encounter pieces of history, whether it be YouTube videos or stuff we see on Twitter or articles, uh, in the major news outlets like New York Times and CNN. And my question that I was wanting to know the answer to was, if we're surrounded by all this historical information all the time, is it actually improving our understanding of history? So, in other words, what is the impact of all this stuff? And I, um, I also, there's like a sub-question to that, which is, of all this stuff that we're seeing online, which of it is sort of rising to the top of our feeds on a regular basis and which is getting buried in the bottom of our feeds and so that we never see it. And so by answering one question, I came to answer the other. So the the question of what rises in our feeds and why we see certain things and why we don't, the more I looked into it, the more I started to realize that the stuff that the historical information we see online tends to mirror the values of the web itself. In other words, the web values and privileges certain things and certain types of information, and history and historical information is affected by that just as information about science and politics and news is. So in other words, we see information online about history that conforms best and adapts best to the values of the social web itself. And so from there, I came to the conclusion that all of the history that we're seeing online that is inundating the online public sphere on a daily and weekly basis is not actually improving our understanding of history all that much. What it's doing is it's further embedding the values of the social web deeper into our lives. And that includes misinformation, and disinformation, but it also includes lots of other things. Um, But basically, that was sort of the conclusion that I came to after five and a half years of researching and writing this book. During which a lot of things changed, right? You know what's interesting about that? Certainly things are changing all the time, but what's funny about it is when I first started writing this book, the publishers who I pitched it to were worried that it would become obsolete really quickly and that by the time it was published, no one would think it was relevant. And, of course, they were completely wrong. It's still incredibly relevant, perhaps even more relevant than when I first pitched the idea five years ago. And to me, that indicates that so much has stayed the same. And this is why I came to one of the conclusions that I did, that actually, the more we create content online, the less that has to do with education, and the more it has to do with just further cementing and embedding the values and the tropes and the mechanisms of online content generation into all aspects of our lives in ways that we become so entangled with them that we can't separate ourselves from them anymore. And so um, while news headlines come and go and things bubble up to the surface one month and then disappear the next, those larger structures and infrastructures below the surface are actually surprisingly not changing all that much. And in fact, they're just getting further and further embedded into the way we think about not just history, but science and politics and and news and other things. And I recognize that this is a little bit opaque and I'm sort of giving like a 30,000 foot view and throwing a lot out there. So I'm happy to kind of go into specifics to kind of clarify what I mean by all this.
3: Well, I always try to, I can't do anything but specifics. And so I am thinking of the things that are affecting us right now, which is um, the history of the United States. And actually, Heyman and I were talking before the room, the history of Canada and what's happening in Canada and how what is happening in the United States it affects what is happening in Canada and here's here's the issue you know we used to have a let's call it you know an accepted history of the United States and one of the parts of the accepted history of the United States was the principle of american exceptionalism. We are better than everybody else. Well, I don't see any, any way to even defend that anymore. Do you? I mean, does that mean we need to change what's in the history books? Or what, what do we need to do to better reflect what we have found out about ourselves?
2: well so this is this is a question that's sort of a little bit apart from the book, but uh, I'll take a stab at it. I would say this um history is continually being revised and reassessed that's That's part of the history profession and so the sort of meta narrative about the United States that you're referring to that came of age during the American century and the twentieth century and that was enshrined into textbooks or into scholarly monographs by um, <clears throat> people like Richard Hofstadter, for example, who you mentioned yesterday. You know, th- that that historiography was then challenged and revised by a new generation of historians in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, Howard Zinn's probably the most famous uh, from that group, who actually called themselves revisionists. Um, but there were a whole slew of other historians. We know Howard Zinn's name because he was friends with Matt Damon, and Matt Damon put him in all of his movies, and he wrote People's History of the United States, which was a book that at its time actually received a lot of criticism, but today is sort of held up as this sort of Bible of historical interpretation. We actually did a history club on Howard Zinn a while ago that we did a podcast on you can listen to on my website. But anyway, be that as it may... um, you know, in the 1960s and 1970s and even into the 1980s, that sort of panacea picture of the United States was challenged, was poked at, was overturned by a generation of historians who said, look, if you look at the African-American experience, if you look at the indigenous experience, if you look at the Asian-American experience, this meta narrative about the United States doesn't hold up. It's not inclusive enough. It's not diverse enough. It's not complete enough. It's not accurate enough. And so we've been sort of wrestling with this question about how we tell the American story for the past 50 to 60 years and i don't see that as a bad thing i see that as a good thing i see that as inherently part of what history should be we should always be analyzing uh, questioning digging looking for new sources looking for new information trying to put together the most accurate and complete picture that we can. I think one of the challenges, though, and Jill Lepore has written about this in a really wonderful book which I encourage people to read, which is, this is you know same some same of these meta narratives about countries, whether it be United States or Canada or India or France or whatever, they, or, they or or even of, Russia, right? They are sort of embedded within nationalistic frameworks, and we've seen the ugly sides of nationalism. You don't have to look too far in history to see the evils and the ills that nationalism, especially ethnic nationalism, can perpetuate. So, Jill Lepore makes the argument in her book that we should be doing away with nationalism, but we can keep patriotism. And, uh, you know, that's an interesting argument that I think has some credence and some merit to it, and people are, you know, can can disagree with that, but I encourage you to read Jill Lepore's book. And for, for people who know Jill Lepore, she's an intellectual heavyweight professor of at Harvard, writes for the New Yorker, so when she speaks, you know, I tend to take her pretty seriously. Um, and so if you if you choose to remain patriotic about the United States, uh, that's your right to do so, but it's certainly also incumbent upon us to try to tell the story of the United States as accurately as possible, and that accuracy entails lots of different perspectives, and those different perspectives have a very different conception of what the United States has meant and what it has been and what it has done and what it can be.
3: And actually, would oh, thank you, Heyman. See how Heyman gets all this stuff put up there. Um, people on stage, wouldn't you like to contribute?
5: Sure. Um, thank you all so much. And, and Jason, we've been in contact before, uh, I guess last year at this point. I think we met in the after-we-vote room. Um and club uh yeah so um i hear you i just yeah i just want some more i'm just curious because i hear what you're saying and then but then i want to know more so so well one you know my father uh was you know is a published author he's won tons of teacher of the year neh all kinds of other awards um And uh, he he taught me about uh, Howard Zinn from I was an embryo like Howard I guess Howard Zinn has always been pop culture icon status in my home (laughs) Um, as a child so I didn't need Hollywood uh, the Hollywood machine to to know about um, the gravity of 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 Howard Zinn Um, my my question query pivot in the conversation would be around. and, and I think revisionists, yes, but I think at this point what's happening, my question was around what you were saying about social media and, like, other ways in which history conversations are being had is it, um from what I see, a lot of it is disruptive history, right? So so it's count, it, they're, they're counter-narratives um, in terms of disrupting the narrative, the, the status quo, the privileging of people that have always been in power, which disproportionately are white, cis, and um, And, you know, uh, individuals um, from so-called first world countries and positing these other narratives that have always existed. Right. It's not like we don't have stories to tell. It's just that we've been shamed and silenced into not being able to share them. Right. So I grew up with Ivan Van Sertema. I grew up with Dr. Ben Yakin. I grew up with a lot of other Caribbean revolutionary um, African um, all kinds of other, you know, CLR James. Like there, there's a long history, tradition, and tradition of what I would call disruptive historians that say, Mm-mm, here's the truth, and it's not um, fodder for folly. It's actual truth. But because you know, our society, Western society writ large, is a gaslight for people of. Literally marginalized groups. This is why we're marginalized, right? We're so marginal that when we say the truth, we're shamed and shocked, um, and 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 sil- and silenced instead of this actually being brought into the actual canon. It's still relegated to the periphery, generation after generation. And so that's why I think now social media is like pop pop <laughs> because they're like, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, you know, Dr. Francine for the blacks. You know, I want, I want to say fuck. I mean, I'm. I'm I'll say it like fuck the canon <laughs> right that's what I think a lot of social you media you may say is. whatever you want we black of blacks thank you I'll say it one more time fuck the canon <laughs> right that that to me and yes is 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 social media also a form for for miss and disinformation sure but I think there that, that to to and I'm not saying that you did that Jason but but to 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 say in any way that like you know mis and disinformation is you know, all that's running amok on social media is to me is yet another gaslight of 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 marginalized um, individuals who are literally targeted, specifically black content creators are targeted because they're actually literally telling the truth or highlighting the the, the hypocrisies, the injustices um, and, and, and other ways in which. Um, you know, the moral arc of the universe does not bend towards justice generation after generation. So just wanted to hear your your thoughts on all of that. And, and I also was the director of history at Harlem Children's Zone. So I had, since like 2008, had distributed all of this information about Howard Zinn. Um, and, and later on that year, or like the next year, he died. And I looked at all those teachers like, hmm, how many of you all just had those packets collecting dust? And how many of you all actually... Um, utilize them and and, and infuse it into the curriculum which is what i told the teachers to do but just curious
2: thank you for the blacks yeah so i'm guessing you haven't read the book no okay
5: that's why i'm asking the question
2: right Mm -hmm. okay so yeah so i think there's some things that maybe were said there that i'm not i don't it was a little bit confusing to me whether you were saying that i said them or you were just asking Yeah, I'm not exactly sure.
5: No, I I clearly said I didn't say that you said them. I'm just asking
2: the question. Okay, got it. Okay, sorry. Yeah. um, So I would say, first of all, definitely read the book. I think you'll find it interesting. Um, And as I mentioned to Francine when we started the conversation, misinformation and disinformation is not actually a a central focus of the book. Um, There is one or two chapters that mention it, uh, but it's not... The subject of the book, uh, in any stretch of imagination. Um, so
3: where, where is good information
2: to be found? Well, okay. So let me let me try to address the question, and then I can weave that in because I think the there's a couple couple things here. First of all, one of the book talks about is that throughout this universe of what I call e-history, there is really great information, there is so-so information, and then there is outright misinformation and disinformation. And it all sort of sits alongside itself under the moniker or the label of history. And so what happens on the web then, it is left to the consumer to sort out the wheat from the chaff. The stuff that is high quality that is rooted in scholarship from the stuff that is outright lies and disinformation and everything in between. And one of the things I've found in my research is that when we outsource to the consumer that task, what actually tends to happen is confusion and um, less understanding as opposed to more understanding. And there's a lot of scholarship that backs this up, not necessarily when it comes to history, but when it comes to just the general information environment. There have been a number of reports, which I cite in the book, whether it be Pew or whether it be from science communication or whether it be from scholarly literature, from media studies professionals or communications professionals. And the, the evidence kind of keeps coming back the same, which is it becomes incredibly confounding for the average web user who is not a professional historian or doesn't come from a, a family that has a sort of academic or historical background, to sift through all of this information and make sense of it and separate out what is trustworthy and what is not. And so I think one of the challenges when thinking about this subject is that yes, in each of our individual lives, we can all come up with anecdotes whereby we found or saw something on social media where we said, oh, that's really good, I'm glad that's getting out there, or that looks like a really positive piece of historical information or scientific information or whatever, and we want to celebrate that. And so what I tried to do with this book was not solely rely on those anecdotes, which of course we privilege because we, as social media users, want to believe that social media can have these positive effects, but instead take a much larger view of the entire e-history universe and try to understand what that entire universe is doing and what the effects of that entire universe are. So to the specific question that Rebecca asked, uh, sure, there's some good stuff online. That's Rebecca
3: for the Blacks.
2: Excuse me, Rebecca for the Blacks, sorry. Uh, Sure, there's some good stuff online. The challenge is that it becomes very, very difficult, the more that is created and the more that is out there, for that good stuff to be surfaced, for that good stuff to be found, and for people who are not in our field to make sense of it. And the more I looked at the evidence, the more that was the conclusion I was drawn to. Now, I'm perfectly happy for someone to write a book that offers a counter argument to that. That's part of the historical process, is having those dialogical debates, and scholars don't have to agree with each other. But based on the five and a half years of research that I did, that's what I found. So it has, and the other thing I'll just say about that too is that the other thing I found was that some of the stuff that's out there that appears to be, disruptive in a good way or overturning the canon in a good way, uh, which, you know, I endorse because, as I said earlier, that's part of what historical scholarship is, is constantly revising and rethinking. Sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes you look into it and you realize that it's actually coming from nefarious sources. And so one of the things I actually talk about in the book is how there's this there's been this campaign uh, by Russian disinformation actors to put out a whole stream of online history content related to African-American history and black history. And so that raises all kinds of other interesting questions, right? So if you're encountering uh, history from marginalized peoples online, who's creating it? Is it being created by scholars or is it being created by foreign disinformation agents? And if it's being created by foreign disinformation agents, what is the agenda there? What are they trying to do? And so this is all part of this large universe of e-history that we're grappling with. And what I wanted to do in my book was bring this to people's attention because I don't think this is actually something people are aware of or thinking a lot about. And it's not just about what you or I see in our feeds, it's what does the entire picture look like across numerous different platforms and across numerous different time periods. So it's an ambitious project in that respect. And I hope that it will stimulate some more conversation and some some scholarship in this area to take some of these questions further.
1: Stephanie, go next, and then Andrea. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in um, just to um, maybe help for the audience um, just underline some of the things that Jason said as somebody who's read the book and really... Loves it. I just about the premise of the book, you know. As he, a, a lot of the book deals with what Jason said was was what he's calling e history, which is which he said. But again, just because it took me a minute to understand this as I read the book, which I went through twice, A lot of the book is that deals with that's what Jason the, said was is e- cast That's journalism that's written like by not you know not necessarily historians but journalists. That that's memes that um you know all of this this stuff that sort of you know is make and it starts like it for at wiki i guess which is like around 2001 and sort of what is the effect of e-history specifically on us as society right that's sort of the the, the question he's positing and he's exploring and um, what Jason just said, which is what sort of ties into what Francine was saying, like where does this tie into disinformation, or where does it? It's like again, you know, who's producing this content? Is it crowdsourced on Wiki, so it's consensus-driven? Is it somebody nefarious in Russia? Is it Pregger? U? Is it you know me and Rebecca for the blacks in the living room? just doing something because we want to, is it a professional historian? That's where it gets into the sort of question of, um, spitting out disinformation, but that's not the premise necessarily of the book. And then the book sort of gives examples of where we interface with e-history and, um, and sort of like what moves that stuff up, up in our feeds and becomes more prominent. What becomes, what because it this is all existing on the web you know what is perceived at any given moment as very very important historical stuff because it's connected to something newsworthy um so i just thought i would just like that might be helpful for the folks in the audience it may or may not but you know um i thought can i ask one question uh fancy to jason or should should i just leave it at that No. Okay. So, so uh, maybe I, Jason, you know, there's, well, you know what I think about the book, but there's a lot of really interesting um, moments of intersection that you focus on in the book. And I think maybe one of them that would be somewhat pertain to what has been brought up by my friends on the stage is this. So, you know, it was really interesting when you talk about um, the PragerU video uh, about you know civil rights, right? Uh, I mean, I mean, sorry about the Civil War, and and how 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 that became, you know, even more viewed, and how how incredibly circulated and viewed it was uh, after uh, Dylan Roof had had um, had murdered those people and was you know discovered to be you know walking around with Confederate flags. So people were like, what is the Civil War? Like, what's the deal with that? Maybe can you talk about that moment for folks?
2: Uh, sure. Yeah, so that that's actually the first anecdote that I put in the book. <clears throat> and um, I have a friend who is a historian uh, actually at West Point. So he was a Ph.D. historian who was teaching history to Army cadets for about 30 years. And in 2015, he was approached by PragerU, which is a conservative... Uh, online media company, essentially, um, to be in a video about uh, the U.S. Civil War. And that video was produced in the summer of 2015, shortly after the massacre in, in Charleston, South Carolina. And I use that example, one, because it's another one of these gray areas where you have a professional historian, a PhD historian, who is saying uh, or sort of explaining the U.S. Civil War in very um, factual terms uh, and, and making the argument in the video about how undeniably slavery was the cause of the war and undeniably uh, this was an act of uh, treason and secession by the Confederacy. Uh, and undeniably that uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Union victory to abolish slavery was a pivotal moment in the history of the United States and for civil rights and, and all this stuff, you know, all the all sort of quote-unquote right interpretations of the U.S. Civil War. But it's produced and created by this conservative media company whose agenda is actually very plainly stated as counteracting what it considers to be a quote unquote liberal orthodoxy within the academy. And
1: very well financed. I'll just insert that. Right, in a very, well, very financed. well financed tens of
2: million, Tens of millions of dollars behind these behind these videos. And this video went on to have somewhere in the range of thirty five to forty million views on it. Um, and so
3: And your friend contributed to
2: to it as the historian,
3: but didn't have a say in the editing.
2: Correct. So so this is so this to me seemed like a very interesting example to start with, right? Because it raises all types of interesting questions and questions that we as a society have to grapple with. One, you have this information which on the surface is accurate uh, and is presented to you by a credentialed historian. But it's within the framework of this clearly slanted to the right, clearly agenda-driven company, not a university, not an educational institution, a company that has a clear political agenda. And it then, because of when it's released and the circumstances around it's released, uh, pegged to this horrible massacre and, sure. the, and the debates around the Confederate flag, gets circulated online on Facebook and YouTube and other places to the point where it has tens of millions of views and becomes this highly viewed, highly ingested form of, as Seven said, e-history. And so what do we as consumers of historical information online do with something like this? How do we reconcile with this? How do we reckon with it? Um you know, and and so that seemed to me like an interesting way to get into some of these thorny issues um, that e history raises. And one of the things I think that I, one the, I hope will come from this book is that people will just start to ask more critical questions about the content that they see online.
6: Well, and wait a minute. We'll
2: develop, that will develop a little bit of media literacy around these things, so that we can so we can say to each other, okay, I'm seeing this video. On first glance, it appears to be accurate, but what's below the surface? What is the agenda that's driving this? And why is this getting so many views right now? And that hopefully that type of media literacy and historical literacy will help us sort of better decipher the information that we see in our feeds every day.
3: Okay, so that is why I gave it to my grandson. Exactly, and years ago, one second Andrea, years ago I read a book by Ellie Pariser, this has got to be 10 years ago, called The Filter Bubble, and it was all about how the internet and search patterns and so on drove us into what is known as a filter bubble, but the question that I want to bring up is, when I was in school, we had these black and white films that were shown in classes, and they were all about things like you know, World War II or um, <laughs> the manufacturing facilities, steel, the steel capabilities of the United States in manufacturing. and they were, you know, quote, "documentaries unquote." But when I think back on them now with the media literacy that I have from years of dealing with the internet, I realized there was an, an incredible bias to them. And that was the American exceptionalism bias. But it's not like bias never existed, right? Right.
2: Oh, yeah, I I think this is part of the work of the historian, right? Historians go back and they look at moments in time and they say, okay, what what was the bias of this person or what was the agenda of this person? Why was this document? created at a certain time, um, what was he trying to do? Uh, There's a a phrase in sort of the history profession, we talked about uh, reading sources against the grain. So you know, there's a source will tell you one thing, but then how do you read it against the grain? How do you read between the lines? How do you try to understand what was behind it? And uh, that's always been an important skill, but it's even more important now because as study after study has shown, we are continuing to get more and more of our information through these mediated platforms and whether it be on our phones or on our desktops and in the book I cite a frameworks institute study from 2020 that found that increasingly students and citizens are getting their history from social media and from uh, news op-eds or, or news stories or even from from television and you know to a point earlier there is a certain value to that it Democratizing with a lowercase d, it sort of overturns some of the staid entire narratives of the 20th century, but it still requires us to be media literate. We can't just accept it all at face value. We still have to ask critically where this information is coming from, who's producing it, what are the agendas behind it, why am I seeing this now, what is rising it to the top of my feed you know, just because the person says they're a historian, are they actually a historian? What are their credentials? Just because this institution has a U at the end of its name, does that mean it's actually a university? Does that mean that it actually has an educational intent? Or does it have a political intent? Or does it have a misinformation or disinformation intent? These are all the types of questions that we need to be asking. We ask them about science. We ask them about news. I'm asking them about history in this book. And I hope that these are types of conversations that we can start to have. And I don't, I don't have all the answers, but with this book, I wanted to start to raise some of the questions. And I also wanted to report what I found. And what I found, just again, from my own research, I'm happy to be proven wrong, but from my research, I found that actually all this information online is not improving our understanding of history all that much. And so that's another conversation that I feel like we need to be having.
3: Well, all these conversations are related, and I'm going to take a second and reset the room and say that you are listening to the Karma Club, which is a weekly salon for smart people where we talk about really important, complicated issues of which this is really One of the biggest, because this underpins a lot of the other issues that we end up dealing with, which is uh, misinformation, disinformation, democracy, voting rights, you know, race, race relations, just everything. And I want to say to you that you should come back every week because we're going to have these, we've been having these discussions every week. And I've been saying to people, although they're free, you should, you should please um, get on rally.io and uh, buy a couple of Karma coins so that you support the effort because what we do with this is we give grants to um, under-recognized and marginalized creators who need them to make different voices heard. And it's it, karma in the old Indian tradition, as in um, India, not Native American Indian, but in the, is you get back what you put out. And I am trying to put out good information, smart people, uh, and love into this universe. And God damn it, this universe needs it. Um so that's, that's, my, um, that's my little song and dance. Hey, man, when you get a chance, um, if you put up all the links for the Karma Club and the Karma Coin, that would be great. Andrea?
7: Thank you, Dr. Francine, and I'm so excited to... Uh, Jason, you should come back every week, but go on. I'm yeah. I'm excited to hear. Uh, this is the second room uh, going over Jason's book that I've been in, and um, I hear a different angle every time. So I think you should just you know sort of travel, come back to Dr. Francine's club, but travel across and throughout as many places and spaces as you can, especially on Clubhouse. But um, I I um, wanted to say that it was like clockwork, seven cued me up with my question, which was, um, did you have any thoughts or, or solutions for the, uh, you know, the dilemma of the dueling experts, um, that people might listen to, uh, and how they can, you know, evaluate both sides and, and make a decent decision. I think you may have just covered that, but I see that the dueling experts is something, you know, from a court case to, um, you know, different media coverage, not just online, but also, you know, traditional media uh, and, and, you know, how we can train people up to make sense of that. Um And I think I'll land there. I have a lot. But thank you for your book. I have also ordered it for my daughter, but it hasn't uh, reached yet. But very excited to give it to her so that she uh, can strengthen her as a young adult uh, critical thinking skills, which I'm hoping she got some in school, too, in high school since she's about to graduate. But thank you. You know what the irony is? And Jason told me this yesterday. Nobody reads their
3: history textbook anymore they get all their history from the Internet. So now what they need is a textbook to tell them how to interpret and be wary of things that they read and learn on the Internet, and we all should have learned that during COVID, but maybe we did and maybe we didn't. Um, Robert, you raised your hand that you wanted to come up. Oh, should I answer it question Yes, please,
7: Jason.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. You no, know, it's no problem. But, for instance, I think it's actually a very funny observation. I appreciate that. Sort of like people, no one reads books anymore, but then I write a book about how people should <laughs> think about the internet. Um, I would say... It's all
6: meta. It's it's, all a, meta. it's
2: very, very meta. And I would say just for any, from what I learned writing this book, apart from just the research that I did, was the greatest reward of writing a book is the process of writing and just becoming a better writer. Um, because uh, while it's very kind that friends and, and people in this room have ordered the book, uh, I'm under no illusion that this is going to be uh, a bestseller or, or or widely read by people, because people don't read books uh, anymore, and particularly young people don't read books anymore. And again, we can all find anecdotal examples of young people we know who have read books, so I'm generalizing, of course. But the numbers have borne out over the past decade and a half that fewer and fewer Americans are reading fewer and fewer books. And there was a slight uptick during the pandemic when people have been stuck at home. Uh, but by and large
3: Jason, put your book on Audible. Yeah.
2: By and large it's you know, it's the it's the Michelle Obamas and it's the uh Stanley Tucci's and the Will Smiths and the Paul McCartneys of the world who sell books and the publishers know that. And so those are the books that keep the publishing industry afloat. And then books like mine sell a couple hundred copies and no one makes any money, and that's just kind of how it is. So <laughs> I'm fully aware of that fact. Now, you've got
3: to understand, I'm in marketing, okay? So what you've got to understand is the real purpose of a book, which is to provide a platform for someone with good ideas to get their good ideas out into the universe by, you know, being invited to rooms like this and all sorts of other places and getting the ideas talked about, and it, and you're doing it. I mean, you have a Substack, you know, you you have a podcast. This is this is what to do. And the book is nothing but a as I said, a platform or a background for that, and it's
2: been like that for a very long time. Um, Yeah. Well, I do appreciate the conversations, and I do appreciate the tough questions and the back and forth, because that helps me think more critically about my own research and where maybe I have blind spots or maybe where there needs to be a follow-up of some sort. So I do appreciate all that. But just to the point that Andrea was making. So, the you know, professional history is... A series of experts arguing and disagreeing with each other. And that's I think party of the part of the beauty of it as well as part of part of the frustration of it. If you've ever sat inside of a history department faculty meeting, they can sometimes go on for two to three or four hours because people are constantly debating with each other, whether it be about scholarship or whether it be about teaching or whether it be about coursework. And the reason I bring this up is because, as I talk about in the book, when historians think about the word history, we typically see history or define history as a series of arguments about the past. So we have an argument about the American War of Independence and why it was important and why it mattered or why it didn't go far enough in terms of living up to the ideals of freedom and liberty for all people. We have arguments about the U.S. Civil War, or about civil rights, or about women's suffrage, and these are the arguments that make up professional history, whether it be inside the academy or inside the museum world. One of the challenges of e-history, the transposition of scholarly history into the social media environment, is that those arguments tend to get elided or erased, and one of the things I talk about in the book is that e-history oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes promises simple answers to complex questions. And that's one of the challenges of e-history, right? Because from the the mind, from the world of the historian, these questions are incredibly complex, incredibly nuanced, and require that debate among experts. But the way e-history oftentimes gets presented on the web is it provides you with a quickly satisfying, instantly gratifying take home message about history that you can then feel good that you digest it in 30 seconds and move on with the rest of your day? And so, this is one of the, actually the, one of the main premises of the book, which is it's very hard to put these scholarly arguments into the social web in ways that really get at the complexity and the depth of historiography and the debates that historians have with themselves, which is again an argument for more media literacy and historical literacy when we consume information online. So that way, when you see something online that promises a quick and easy answer to a complex question, you can then take a moment to ask yourself, okay, what more digging do I need to do, or what other sources do I need to look at in order to get a more complex and nuanced picture of this phenomenon?
3: Well, I I'm going to let uh, David and Robin can and can you yeah, uh, Barbara can I add? Yeah, Barbara, just hang on, yeah. okay, for for one second. Um, I think what what I'm going to do when I'm this is very important. When I'm queen of the universe in the next life or in the metaverse or wherever I go, I am going to throw out all of the, the quote, fact-based stuff and make a school curriculum that consists only of media literacy and meta-discussion Be (laughs) between all conflicting points of view and you can probably teach all these subjects simply through the lens of what Jason has in his book in other words, how, how to make people aware of what is happening to them and the whole rest of this stuff you can get that off Wikipedia or YouTube or whatever. Anyway, onward, Barbara, go on, and then I'm going to have, and then then I would like to have uh, David and Robert take us home, whatever home is. Thank you, Francine. I want to put a little bit of a lens on it
6: in terms of what you um, talked about, the U.S. bias. I Actually, uh, I'm on a lower signal, but I hope you can hear me. I actually call it the American trance. So what I find is that, you know, in being, working at Harvard Kennedy School as the chair of the Women's Leadership Board, been there for 16 years, plus running my own business, I really find that the American lens on everything, like I, you heard an accent on Danish, brought up in Denmark, and we, when we talked about the U.S., we didn't talk about the U.S. being this superior thing, we talked about it being a troubled country, you know, I remember JFK's assassination, I was a kid. But I remember the conversation going, oh, my God, what is happening to America? You know, so there was a lot of concern in Copenhagen and in Scandinavia and other parts of the world about that. But you don't hear that in America. You don't hear that. I don't even hear it at Harvey Kennedy School, you know, in terms of conversation. So when I was chair there, I actually invited um, – women from 10 different countries like Lebanon, Germany, Ireland, Sweden, Egypt, Australia, etc. And I asked them to talk about their experience of America. And, uh, boy, was there ever a different lens. So I just really think that, you know, that trance, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know if you ever read the book called Trans as People Live, but it's a, it's old, but it's brilliant. Uh, we need to get out of that, too, and have a, a much larger context in how we view this, um, because I think there's some tremendous insights there, and, and also, as Jason talked about, blind spots, you know, that we when we don't know, we don't know. Uh, we don't understand the fact that there are very, very different perspectives of what other people, men and women, from different parts of the world, have a view of america i just wanted to add that deeper context to it thanks francine
3: oh that is so true and that's why Heyman and i are going to do a room on canada and america and how america rubs off on canada and my daughter and i we're always talking about um, the uk and how that rubs off on america and why she's not coming home okay david
8: Where's my button? My mute unmute button.
3: <laughs> I don't know. You're new Yeah, You probably don't
8: know. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year, Doctor Francine. Happy
0: New Year.
8: <laughs> I'm gonna say that all month.
0: Okay. I. Um,
8: what a great topic, man. And you know, <clears throat> Jason, thank you for contributing to to the issue in, in, in such a great way. And I let me let me just per, give just three of the ones that I look at. And you know, history. Sets the context for for values in a culture, right? So I, I kind of the the three legged stool I, I'm looking at is is who's telling the story because there's for years we've been talking about his story and those that uh, you know those that win the battles are the ones that are published in the in the books, right? And that's what's taught, right? And, and, but but it's, what what is important and I I kind of want to call it the shared story that we have and and now with the metaverse conversations what's the reality right this is this is a some of the quote-unquote reality because it's expressed in our values and our mindset so that's that's one thing where
3: oh my god david if i have a room on on the metaverse and reality and these kinds of questions will you come back that's (laughs) such a great idea Hey,
8: man. Let's put that on the schedule. I love that idea. Yeah, I mean, but it's but uh, ben, we've all been learning. I've been learning personally about what is reality in that whole conversation, right? And how the brain creates reality. And it's really there's there's this there's, there's science. I mean, there's there's anyways. That's a different room. But so that's one leg on the stool. Where um, you know who who has the microphone, right? And so the second stool is just how is that disseminated? And it's in something about the decentralization of of media, right? With the rise of social media, anybody who creates a profile is an expert. I mean that's literally that that's your, your doorway to expertise. Um, you know, it's one thing to provide dignity to people to share their opinion, but then it's just, like, amazing how the way the platforms work, the social platforms, like, wow, they've got 100,000 followers, and they can chirp out any kind of opinion, and all of a sudden people start to embrace that, right? So, so in any case, and there's a whole bunch of stuff there in the power structure related to that, but I want to come back to, in closing... Um, to what are some of these solutions, right? And, and we, we, we just, I'm a boomer, so, you know, talk about books. Yeah, I have books. They've got, got a little bit of dust on some of my books, right? You know, and then I learned as a marketeer years ago, people stopped reading, right? And that was before the social media attention economy really got traction. But gamified learning. So you already have, Jason, you have a bunch of awesome content. So to what I would... Propose, and this is with anybody I like, definitely write your book first because it really gets you to think but then you know the the let's, the, let's
3: connect him to a game developer
8: yeah yeah or just it's pretty you know, gamified learning is just you know there's different ways you could quickly figure it out but that, that's that's my point of making it what the media is the message and it, with from there you get into the mind so and then one thing I would like to say because I'm a I'm a techie from the valley from the 80s and I will tell you something happened. Yeah, I know. That's why I love joining you on these stages. We get, we get to we get to share the old school, right? <laughs> and and y'all, Google hijacked knowledge discovery. Okay, their algorithm full just full stop. And where, I mean they 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 initially were just trying to compete, and they won. But what has occurred? you know, is, you know, when, that whole Google it, right? So when we have a question when, about anything, everybody naturally goes to Google and their algorithm will take us to wherever their algorithm takes us. So that that is something that because of their design, remember, when they first, the way that they won was they were serving up search results super lightning fast. But... Now they need to rev their user experience to help. Out. They need to start labeling and using the freaking AI to label misinformation and just have a more rich, color-coded, uh, you know, information dashboard that really helps solve the problem that was created by their design. The by that, that's,
3: that's exactly right, because I remember, and you will too, David, and then we're going to Robert and Lavinia, and then um, we're stopping because... I don't like my rooms to go on too long, but but I remember, you know, when the first search engine was Yahoo and it was Jerry Yang and his partner putting up, you know, a directory of sites that they had manually crawled on the internet, and organized according to categories. That was what search used to be. God help us now. Um, Robert, you're next.
4: Thank you, Dr. Francine, for such a good room. You know, hearing what I'm hearing brings uh, thoughts and feelings to mind. And for a moment, I'm going to try to get a bit out of my brain and a little more into my heart and my intuition on these issues, because they're so important and and bear on my life. I feel that, um, you know, we're at sort of a transition point of, um, you know, this whole phenomenon we're talking about, uh, of the rise of this kind of media um, being so large and overwhelming that we actually uh, have to, study it to, to know how to deal with it and survive it. I mean, just think of that for a moment. It, it has come to that, where that is now a priority. And and I think one of the well, reasons... that, I
3: think, is the first priority, don't you? Well,
4: well, here's what I... I had a reaction. I was writing some notes. Uh, you know, I reacted to the term media literacy being a priority. I took it uh, up or down a notch, whichever you want to call it. I gravitated towards consciousness literacy because you know our consciousness and our and our true nature and our inner brains and our subconscious are the most precious possessions we have. The media is external to us. what What's going on now, in my opinion, is that the breakdown is really in effect now between our own individual consciousness and the mass consciousness as we experience it through the internet you know uh, we we talked about mass consciousness forever but there have never been these electronic tools that amplify it and um, accelerate it and make it much bigger louder brighter and noisier and so the mass consciousness now uh, is this huge thing that has broken down the barrier of individuality, of, of who we truly are, to now we're subject to all of these influences and messages uh, beyond our awareness and our will. So, I think- Oh, boy, I've got two
3: new room topics out of this. Okay. Thank you, Robert. David gives, David gives me one, and you've given me the other. We, we need to talk about mass consciousness.
4: Yes, because we're, we're at a pivotal point uh, where you know, I mean, there's a lot of ways to illustrate that. For example, the the children who are being born now, when they're in their 20s and 30s, of course, they will never have experienced a world without this infusion of all of this in social media. So, their you know their perspective on where their brains are is going to be completely inseparable from that. It's already gotten to that point with with almost everyone now. We're feeling the effect of that, the breakdown of the barrier between us and this thing. And so I think one of the things that I aspire to do is keep that barrier and that, um, you know, that distance uh, kind of within my control, so to speak, or at least awareness. And one of the things that I've done to affect that, believe it or not, is um, with all of uh, you know the breakdown of you know like post fact and you know relative truth and right all, all of these things that, that are brought up and, and nuanced you see there's been a lot of nuancing and parsing of these concerns down to minutia where it gets so complex it's hard to grasp it in, in a way that's effective so one of the things that I've done is I went to the uh, online public library. And ordered Aesop's Fables and the Fables of La Fontaine, like really foundational literature and uh, narratives of of Western culture, to go back to tales of animals and men and women and people and metaphors of the paradigms and the um, let's say uh, the archetypes of personality and consciousness, which are. Played out in these fables, dude. I love See,
1: that.
3: I very no
4: no very very directly. There I are love wo- that. There, No, there are wolves, there are foxes, there are dogs, there are lambs, and and, lion, love it. and lions I've and mice. I've read all these. Yes, yeah. well, but it's time to It's time to revisit that stuff to get back to the origins and really work our way forward again. Okay. It's very refreshing to read these things. That's another room. That okay. is an- another room. I, I'm, I'm getting my uh, Dr. Francine, if you want to do fables, I would love to co on that one with you.
3: I would definitely want you to do that, and we're going to do it together for sure. Okay. Don't, don't you That's worry. Lavina.
4: Okay.
1: Go ahead. Mila, Hi, you you. Hi, Dr. Francine Haywin um, and everyone else. Uh, really awesome discussion. I mean, history disrupted. Uh, so much said, so much to be said uh, just in those two words together. Um, but I think, you know, um, just around the media literacy that everybody's talking about at the moment, uh, it is very much uh, about the practice, uh, the practice that allows people to maneuver within the space, right? Um, and this is the new sort of culture that's coming on board. And bearing that in mind, um, you know, to David and Robert's point, uh, around uh, public intelligence and the creation of public intelligence so that we actually can gain more conscious creation uh, for a more intelligent tomorrow right this is what everything is pretty much around Um, so I just want to thank you um, for hosting another lovely room well thank,
3: thank you for coming and Jason thank you for coming and audience people thank you for coming I take this as a huge honor I discuss things that I think um you know are are interesting to the world, but I never know if they actually will be. and um, and they turn out to be, and I've met some incredible people in my own rooms. It's like, man, i'm I've made my salon. I have literally, Made a salon. And it's so exciting to me. So I, in such gratitude, I thank you for showing up week after week. I'm going to, and, and yeah, you can, got all this stuff on Linktree where you can find me. Um, Heyman puts it all up there. Buy some karma coins, help a starving artist, and, um, and that's it. I'll see you next week. And I think Heyman and I are going to do our, our, our room on Canada and America next week and what we are doing to ruin Canada. And then uh, we will be getting into David and Robert's topics and misinformation and all the great suggestions that you guys have given through your presence. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you
8: thank you Dr. Francine and yeah I see Paul in the audience Paul this this is some good stuff I mean this is a, such a special platform Clubhouse just how unique it is to really curate some very specific conversations to help unify and to educate all of us um,
3: I've told him this yeah years. Uh, this has been so amazing for me, and for the people I've met here, and my friends, and I want to help Jason's book get a better reading, and and get the ideas out in greater circulation, so thank you, that is going to happen.